Welcome one and all to the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for Friday, May 8th, 2020. We hope you all are staying safe and healthy. We are jam-packed with COVID-19 news once again this week. Uh, But the difference is we had so much stuff that we gathered this week that we decided to give the line opinion panel a week off. No worries. They will be back next week, a very important week for the state as the governor's current stay-at-home order, health order, is due to expire on the 15th. So we will find out next week what her plan is for moving forward and potentially starting the reopening plan. So we'll be keeping a close eye on all of that next week and can't wait to hear what the line folks have to say about all of that. Before we get into the show this week, we want to remind you there's so many ways to get caught up on all things New Mexico in focus. We have our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org, where you can go back and watch the full show or any segments from past shows. Or you can follow us on Facebook, on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We're in all those places, all great ways. Wherever you prefer to go, you can find us in any of those places. We also want to remind you, in terms of COVID-19 coverage, our partnership with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter with the Your NM Government podcast, which we have retooled for COVID-19 updates. That comes out each and every weekday, and you can get that on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere that you get your podcast. Just go ahead and subscribe and share the word on that. All right, kicking things off this week, we wanted to get an update on COVID-19 testing in the state. Last week in the governor's press conference, Our own Matt Grubbs asked Health Secretary Kathleen Kunkel about the testing. We know our capacity in the state is around 5,000 tests per day, and the governor set a new goal of 7,500 tests per day, and yet they also acknowledge that we are not hitting that goal on a regular basis. So we wanted to get to the bottom of why that is and what the strategy, the the, uh, approach is going to be around testing moving forward. So here is Department of Health Secretary Kathleen Kunkel and Senior Producer Matt Grubbs. Secretary Kathleen Kunkel, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and talk a little bit about uh, testing. I know it's something that's been been on your mind for a couple of months now. Well, hi, nice to meet you and I'm very uh, happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, yes, of course. Um, I wanted to start with um, uh, the last uh, media briefing or or Facebook briefing in April, uh, where you spoke a little bit about um, the state's capacity for testing, which is somewhere between five and 6,000, and the actual testing it's done, which seems to, there are a couple of days where it's exceeded 5,000, but it generally seems to be below that. Ah. Can you um, just talk through for us what's happening there with that gap? Sure. I do recall that conversation now on the press conference. Yeah, we, we, we operate at rapid lightning speed, in my, my opinion. Now, when I say we, I mean the Department of Health and the laboratories are, it, it is a lightning speed process. And so it, it isn't always in sync. And more specifically, uh, as we were talking about, Dr. Jennison was, was an outstanding partner and helped us work with laboratories, Tricor, the national labs, um, our state labs, to increase their capacity. And there is machinery, there are instruments is a better term. There are instruments around the state that um, can do COVID-19 testing, but they have to be upgraded, tested, validated. It's a lot of work. So that process was uh, happening. 
And we got to a place where the state of New Mexico got to where they could do approximately 5,000 a day. But that's assuming everything works perfectly on the instrument side. So you have to have reagents. You have to have a machine that doesn't break down. You have to have sufficient staff. So on any given day, there can be a gap there. Uh, that doesn't happen too often. I don't want to uh, make that the real reason, the only reason, but that has happened occasionally. Um, other labs have to be run for the state. Respiratory panels are run on these same instruments and sometimes have to be run for people who have pneumonias and other types of infections. So we have that side of the, the lab capacity can fluctuate depending on their supplies, their staff, and other demands on the instruments. But that is a minor, that, I really think that's minor. Okay. On the mm -hmm. other side, you have our uh, workforce testing capacity, the testing of uh, people on the ground who can swab. And I get to be very concrete so that people don't confuse the processing of uh, a specimen and the swabbing of a person. We tend to lump them together and call them testing, but it's, they're two different parts of a process. So we have, as we have expanded the lab's capacity to do 5,000 tests a day, I did not have the same um, success in increasing my workforce capacity on one end. So sometimes there was a, so half of the, more than half of the swabbing takes place by the public health division at various places around the state, completely under the control of the Department of Health. Our private partners, Presbyterian, Loveless, Christus St. Vincent, uh, Taos Hospital, Gerald Champion, those private partners also are uh, collecting kits and sending them out. So again, managing the workforce on that end can be challenging. And that was sometimes part of the problem was that there weren't, um, there weren't enough people out there collecting. I am working on that. I have we will, we were, we're back in business, we're back up to 5,000. And then the third issue, which I believe the governor spoke to, was that uh, we set up, we being the Department of Health again, set up sites in every county. I believe we say 60, but there's actually as many as 80 at any given time that are reported on the website. And they are open at different times and different days. And the strategy when we set those up maybe four or five weeks ago, was for people to come in and get tested. But that strategy is evolving. Fewer people are coming to those sites. They still need to be there in the event that someone needs in a remote area needs to be tested, they need to stay. But we have an evolving strategy where we're using our test teams to go to specific uh, high-risk populations and do testing. So that evolution, I think also uh, we saw a dip in our ability to uh, maximize our lab capacity. So I, I hope that answers your question. Sure, and as I hear your answer, I'm thinking particularly about areas like Gallup, um, where uh, it's difficult to test people um, in McKinley County, San Juan County, especially as you get in, into the Navajo Nation. Um, ideally, would you like to see something like at those roadblocks testing kits as well? Well, that's, that's an interesting concept. I was on two calls this morning, Matt, uh, regarding McKinley County and testing up there. One, just uh, one call related to the testing team that I'm responsible for and another with the new Navajo task force that the governor has established to deal specifically with Navajo country. And I do think we're going to need two strategies. I think both those groups are going to have a different strategy. I hadn't thought about at the um, 
at the roadblocks. That's an interesting concept. But I do think that uh, Department of Health needs to be more strategic and focus more of their resources in McKinley and San Juan uh, to address the, the issue there. And then I hope to be of service to the Navajo Nation Task Force to provide them with at least what we've learned. They have some support from IHS and the federal government that will be terrific for them, but they also can benefit from our experience about where to go and how to isolate. And that's what the conversation was today. So in short, I don't have a specific strategy to share today with those two counties, but they are certainly primary on my work, on my list of things to do today. Okay, and as you mentioned, that's a much different situation than um, setting up in a hospital parking lot or a balloon fiesta um, where there's such a population center. Um, right. On those days when um, the state doesn't sort of hit that capacity, do you consider that sort of um, lost capacity, wasted day? I mean, how do you how do you sort of categorize that, and and how do you look to sort of fill those gaps? That's painful. Um, I can't say uh, it's a it's a I would say it's a big concern. I meet with the Department of Health testing team at 6.15 in the morning and again at 4.30 in the afternoon. We, we go over our plans for the day and then we meet again at the end and, and uh, it's, it's a target. I mean, I, I understand that um, life happens and we aren't always able to accomplish the tasks that we set out for in the morning. Our goal is to hit that every day. One thing when we don't, I have to know why. So I don't wanna characterize it as a failure. It is painful and you know, we just, we have to keep doing better for the for the state. We have to do better. And I know that this team that is on the ground, they are doing the best they can. We shift gears rapidly in the morning. If I get notice from the Division of Epidemiology that there's a positive in a nursing home, that changes the day. So then a certain team has to go to that nursing home and test everybody. And we may not get to the drive-through site that we thought we were going to get to. So I think the challenge to me is to increase the workforce so that we always hit that. And as I said, the governor now has a much higher goal. So we will have to increase the workforce to do the type of collection to maximize. But yeah, it, it, it feels bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's painful when we don't hit that. We worked hard to, to get there to make sure we could do it. And so not, not benefiting from that is uh is yeah problematic. Sure. Uh, the governor's goal right now. What is that? Seven thousand five hundred is the new goal. Okay. Uh, so, um, sorry ahead. to interrupt. Are most of those um, uh, the the analysis part of the the testing equation that you talked about the the back end? Are most of those labs in state, or are there some out of state labs helping? Well, right now our primary partner is Tricor, okay. and Tricor and State Scientific Lab do the bulk of it. There's always been out-of-state labs that do testing that is reported to the Department of Health. LabCorp is utilized uh, heavily by the Navajo Nation. Quest uh, reports there are uh, there are a number of out-of-state labs. Those are the biggest. Quest, LabCorp, and uh, and then our two labs. And now that we have some of the uh, point of care point rapid testing, they also report directly to um, ERD. And the Department of Health contracted with uh, National Jewish in Denver to extend the ability of uh, state scientific lab, more or less. We consider it a, an extension of their capacity. But 
uh, other, that, that's basically the major uh, contributors to our testing capacity. Okay, okay. And that's ERD, is, is that emergency response division or? Yes, in the okay. Department of Health and epidemiology. Sure. Um, and I appreciate you sort of walking us through what happens when um, in a long-term care facility, there are positive detections. I would imagine that has been um, one of the biggest challenges that you face. Uh, it's it certainly when we see the numbers updated every afternoon, you know, you can just about count on the majority, if not the vast majority being of the deaths, at least being in long-term care facilities. Um, is the goal once you get a positive test in a long-term care facility to test everyone? Yes, that is our strategy. We have two strategies. The testing team does one positive. There's still an opportunity to get in there and make a difference. Although, as I said, once it's in a nursing home, it's extremely difficult to arrest. So the goal is to keep it out. The goal is to uh, review every day as DHI does. The Division of Health Improvement is a part of the Department of Health. They're responsible for licensing nursing homes and they have surveyors and all the surveyors are assigned to specific nursing homes. They do daily checks, they do video monitoring, they look for masking, gloving, infection control, um, taking temperatures before the staff comes in. What we learned was that, uh, this is more anecdotal than something I can publish, but there are asymptomatic staff in nursing homes that have been unfortunately probably uh, responsible for bringing it in. That's no one's fault. They didn't know they were sick. So the gloving and the infection control techniques are incredibly important. So when we get one positive, we are there, we test everybody. Our goal is to continue testing until they don't have any more. If there's more than one positive, and when it, I think we have six or seven nursing homes that have more than 10 positives, we simply have to uh, assist them in managing that. So we have two strategies and we test them all. Okay. Every um, nursing home was provided. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there are 71 nursing homes. They all were provided with kits two weeks ago, roughly, and told start surveying your population. So if you have no positives, then do 15% of your population, and they are all compliant with that. But once we have a positive, then the DOH testing team goes in to support also Department of Aging and Long-Term Services. Secretary Hotram has staff with the ombudsman. She comes in and then it's a joint effort with the Division of Health Improvement, the testing team, uh, experts. I have a physician on that team and aging. We are all in the nursing home trying to find ways to isolate, improve infection control, provide whatever resources we can. Sure. Uh, that sort of gets us into this next phase of, of what New Mexico is going to be going through as people look to return to work. Um, what is your desire in terms of who you want tested and how often um, when people start coming back to places like the University of New Mexico or the labs, these big, large employers, the government, that sort of thing. Who do you want tested and how often? You know, we don't have a firm strategy for that yet. I think this is a part of the medical assistant uh, advisory team's recommendations to the governor about strategizing tiered returns. So I don't have a strict answer for you yet or a definite answer. But those entities are still working. All the government entities, they're still out there. Uh, UNM is still working. Not the, not the school necessarily, but certainly the hospital. So we, do, we have rapid testing for first responders and essential personnel. We have to be able to turn around their testing quickly. But, um, and we do that now. But in terms of who will be tested and how they'll be tested, 
what role were the serological testing take in terms of employment? We do, we're still debating that, and I don't have a I don't have a, a, a clear response yet. Sure, and the serological that's the antibody testing. Correct, blood testing, as opposed to the nasal swabage, which is what we're using to diagnose. Sure. Uh, the difference being whether you have it or have had it is that. Yes. So if you do a blood test, the serological test will tell you if you have the antibodies, which says that you did have it. Does it provide immunity? We don't really know. So is that going to be criteria for return to work? Again, we don't really know. There is a role for it, for sure, though, and the, te and the state will be engaging in serological testing because we may want to know around the state, where do we see large amounts? Where, where do we see pockets? How can we use that effectively? And there's a a team of people studying that, providing recommendations to the governor as we move along. And there will be a role for it, but there's always gonna be a role for viral testing or the nasal swabs as well, because that tells you if you actively have the infection and we still need to do that. So how we do that and how much we do is still under debate or under okay. discussion. Sure, we just have a few seconds left, but do you have a, a goal or a timeline for deciding on sort of the, the testing recommendations for return to work? I think we're in the middle of that timeline right now. Uh, this, there's, as I said, teams of people working on this. There's a, the medical advisory team, the recovery uh, council that the governor established and the Department of Health are all providing input. But I think those decisions to the best of our knowledge are being, you know, we're using the best information we have right now as the state tries to open up their, uh, you know, loosen the restrictions as we did and continue to move forward. But it's a, uh, I think we need some data. I think that we wanna see how it goes. I, I don't know who doesn't have a heightened concern about more people out in public. And are we gonna see a spike in, in positives or, or can we maintain? So we have to keep the, we have to keep it flat. If we start seeing a spike, then I think all of our strategies have to be re-examined. I don't think we have enough data yet to say. Okay. Secretary, we thank you so much for your time and we hope you stay healthy. It was a pleasure. You too. Thank you. The Navajo Nation and other tribal communities continue to be hit extremely hard by the COVID-19 outbreak. We've been keeping close tabs on all of this. And of course, the outbreak there has led to some extreme measures to try to protect the populations, those vulnerable populations and communities in and around the Navajo Reservation in particular. That includes the extension of the closing of the city of Gallup. Roads going into Gallup were closed last weekend. The governor extended that order this week as, the, again, she continues to try to help to curb the spread there. We wanted to get an update on how that is going and the continued struggles and challenges that the Navajo community faces. So our correspondent, Laura Paskus, does what she does best, which lately means checking in with reporters around the state, around the region. This week, it's our Lisa Besente, who is a reporter for the Navajo Times, with an update on COVID-19 and the Navajo Nation. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Navajo Nation continues to be hit hardest by the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, over 2,500 cases and 79 deaths just as of Tuesday, what are some of the contributing factors and who do you see being affected most of all? Well, obviously the contributing factors have, you know, there's been so many articles and you know, the mass media has been able to, 
to put a spotlight on the disparities of Navajo Nation that has been plaguing the Navajo Nation for years, such as um, access to water. There's limited access to water. 30% of the Navajo Nation does not have water, as well as, as um, lack of electricity and, you know, just multi-national homes. I grew up in one of those and it, I have no complaint. I loved it. I had family over all the time, but that that does cause the spread, um, especially if you have one member of the family who's sick. It's not just the fact that we all live in one home. It's that we always want to take care of one another. That's how I was raised. And that's how many of our, our Navajo citizens were raised. You take care of um, your family. And, and that's probably the major contributing factors to this. And are you seeing, is it elders who are being affected by the virus or is it everybody, any age? Uh, from the numbers that I've seen, the people who are COVID-19 positive, their average age is 49. When look at the average age of those who have um, succumbed to COVID-19, which is 79 today, it's um, the average 65, I believe. Basically, everyone's being impacted in many different ways. Um, not just being, not just getting sick, not just, it's, it's the family as well. I've seen so many GoFundMe accounts. It's just, it's heartbreaking to see all these GoFundMe accounts of people who are coming to COVID-19. And then, you know, I speak to our Navajo Nation president who is out in the communities distributing um, foods to families who are trying to stay home and who are trying to survive through these curfews that is implemented by our Navajo Department of Health. And he's giving these supplies and these foods and he's saying people are struggling and it doesn't matter the age because everyone is struggling in one way or another. Right. So um, as you mentioned, there is a curfew and then the mayor of Gallup asked the governor to issue and then extend a lockdown order for Gallup. Can you talk about why these closures are so important and how people are responding to them? These closures are, especially with Gallup, a border town like Gallup is, I live 30 miles from um, Gallup. It is a big, big part of of um, Indian country because not only Navajos, you know, the Pueblos and the Zuni Pueblos um, they, and other uh, tribes around the area, they go to Gallup. They go for, for supplies because they have Walmart, they have Safeway, they have Albertsons, they have um, other stores that are utilized heavily to get either hay or animal feed, animal food. So, to close off Gallup, it was kind of a surprise. It was a surprise, but it was a needed it was a needed thing to do because so many people. Although the Navajo Nation is saying, "Please stay home, one person at a time," to go grocery shopping, you would still see people in Gallup shopping with their family. You were still still doing their laundry, and and so yeah, it, it was it was an important. Um, decision to make and it was needed but you know the notification part is what me personally uh, it was it could have been done a little bit better than the, than what they did right 
So I follow you on Twitter and our audience should as well. Um, you're one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. And um, <laughs> one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about was what, the, what has the response been from people who live in and around Gallup in the Navajo Nation versus people coming through perhaps on Interstate 40? What have you seen? Okay, I was on I-40 this weekend and there's a, a, a last station that is owned, operated by a donation center. And they have, wear masks, please, you won't be allowed in. And there's truckers and tourists who are going through and they don't have their masks. And they're asking rudely to these um, sales associates, you know, why do I have to wear a mask? I'm just gonna be in here for a few minutes. I don't, I'm not gonna be here that long. But you know, those are the orders brought down by the Navajo Department of Health. And here at Navajo Nation, we are taking those orders really seriously to the point where we're all, you know, there, you have to go into a store with a mask. So the people in Navajo Nation are abiding by those from what I've seen. And um, tourists, I've seen people, tourists still on the roads who are supposed to be close to visitors. And um, yeah, I still see that around. And some of the orders to people who are not from the Navajo Nation, they're, it, it seems as though abiding by it is kind of, is kind of difficult. And, and they're kind of, and it seems like prize at it. Right. Well, Arlisa, thank you so much for all of your great coverage. And I hope that you <laughs> and your family stay safe. Thank you so very much. Um, but yes, thank you for seeing me and thank you for reaching out. Thank you. Hey, Kevin, can I ask one more question, maybe? These months, the spring and early summer months, are normally a time for a lot of tribal celebrations and gatherings that are just not allowed to happen right now and shouldn't happen because of the fear of spreading the COVID-19 virus. And this week we wanted to find out how folks in Native communities are still trying to stay connected to their culture as well as using their culture and these ceremonies and practices to cope during the challenges of dealing in a quarantined existence or a stay-at-home existence. So correspondent Antonia Gonzalez gathered together a group of young folks to talk about that. It's a really interesting conversation, a great group of people. We've got uh, Tiana Caccini, she's Ms. Zuni, and Taryn Villa, He's the, um, the part of the Jemez Pueblo COVID-19 response team. Also, Isaiah Yazi, that's a name you might be familiar with. He's a Navajo comedian. And so we um, talk about how powwows and other ceremonies are going virtual and just how communities are pulling together and calling on their culture to help during the COVID-19 outbreak. Isaiah, Tiana, and Taryn, thank you so much for joining us this week on Mexico in Focus Virtually. You're welcome. Thank you. For Hello, us. thank you for having us. And we know that COVID-19 is impacting people across Indian country, especially hard here in New Mexico. But this week we wanted to talk about the resilience of Native people, Indigenous people, from young people to our elders that we're seeing use culture and language, tradition to get through this time of COVID-19, but also just to practice some of those events and tribal events and other things that have been canceled due to COVID-19. 
I want to start with you. You have been in communication with community members. What are some of the fun ways or challenges people have been part of um, to lift spirits and also just provide some motivation? Oh, Antonia, thank you for the question. So um, before I begin, like it in on new wall, Hello, everybody. My name is Taryn Vian. I'm from the Pueblo of Hamas. So some awesome things that the people in the Pueblo of Hamas have been working towards lately during this COVID-19 process is really ingraining ourselves in community and showcasing that regardless of whatever we're doing here in the community, we're making sure that we are practicing those social distancing efforts and really wearing um, our mask and something that we've been uh, working towards is ensuring that um, everything that we're doing is part of the community process. I know that in our communal lifestyle as Pueblo people, we are together at times, but during this pandemic, we are forced to reflect and really come together by staying away as that video and the illuminators said. So that's really uh, some of the work that we've been doing here at the Pueblo of Hamas. And you, the community has also been spreading some positivity with some just uplifting messages around the community, is that right? And you've had some drawings and stuff that people can take part of? Yes, yeah, so we've had uh, individual members participate in a few challenges. One was the uh, wear your mask challenge. And the second one that we have going right now is the English Stays Home 4. So participating in uh social media and showcasing what's the importance of staying home during these times to practice that social distancing effort and uh Diana, i want to ask you about the importance of culture um you are royalty for your tribe and you are out there as a representative <laughs> to spread uh, positive messages as well but also uh, uh, uplift spirits as well just talk a little bit about doing that especially during the these trying times so um one thing i've noticed within our community is um we have a lot of cultural you know things going on right now and it's hard to keep the social distancing um aspects of it but we are doing our best and um I really just encourage, you know, everyone to take this time to, you know, connect with your elders, um, whether it be through social media or telephone calls, you know, we can't really be there with them in person. So um, I noticed a lot of social dance groups here in the community. Um, my uncle has a dance group. Um, a few others I know uh, have uh, taken the time out of their day to um, make a video or go live on social media um, showcasing, you know, songs, uh, sending that positive message through our um, traditional uh, songs and our language, which is really beautiful. I enjoy, you know, hopping on uh, Facebook every now and then and seeing um, a new dance group posting their songs and singing for the people in our community, which is really beautiful. And I've noticed um, a few others, uh, different tribes, different pueblos have done the same thing, which is pretty, um, you know, uplifting during these times when we can't really be out there and, you know, give everything that we are meant to do during this time. And Zaya, uh, you've been sharing your comedy on social media platforms, even for uh, COVID-19, the chance to participate in virtual events. Talk a little bit about Native culture, especially during hard times like this, how tribes really across the country 
clear that laughter is medicine. Yeah, we all miss community laughing with cousins, aunties, mom, dads, grandmas. Um, and you know, your grandma's the funniest one in the family and everybody misses hanging out with her. So um, it's nice to be able to go on virtual or go on the internet and do comedy from home while everybody else is at home. Um, and being able to pull all these comedians from all over the United States that you normally wouldn't be able to work with or wouldn't be able to pay out or house them. Um, so it's nice to connect with all these comedians that I've been wanting to work with for a very long time. Taryn, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, that aspect of how laughter and joking as part of culture pretty much and several communities all over New Mexico. Just your thoughts on why it's important during the time to keep up the positive, you know, messages, but also just to laugh and enjoy um, your time, whether you're with your family or, um, you know, doing your work or schoolwork or anything like that. Thank you. Uh, laughter is at the heart of a public community. And since a lot of us can't be with our whole families, um, with our internal nucleus of a family, one thing that we've been appreciating or is just that nucleus of that family and speaking the language to one another. That language is the key to be able to express that laughter. Tiana, what message would you like to share during this difficult time with people across Indian country, um, messages of positivity? Um, I would just like to say, you know, take this time to really um, learn your language, you know, revitalizing our language is part of, um, you know, keeping our culture alive. And I really believe that if, you know, we take the time to, you know, as um, Taryn said, you know, uh, learn our language, know our language and um, use it in everyday conversation. I think that's really beautiful. And, you know, practice social distancing, you know, it's hard not seeing your family, not seeing your grandma. Um, but I mean, take this time to really, you know, focus on yourself. Um, Self-care is also a big key in this. And I really believe that if, you know, we um, take care of ourselves and, you know, learn our language, you know, we will be taken care of by, you know, our creator and all those who um, passed on, you know, they want to see us succeed. So I think that, you know, taking the time to really take care of yourself as well as um, making sure that you are properly social distancing, you know, wearing a mask, um, doing as much as you can as, you know, washing your hands, just taking that time to really focus on yourself and everyone around you. Thank you all for joining us this week and sharing messages of positivity, especially during this difficult time people are facing. Isaiah, why don't you close us out by sharing some of your comedy? Being an essential worker um, at Whole Foods, like a native guy working at Whole Foods, I didn't like it at first because like it was just too politically correct. Like I could call in and be like, hey, I like I would call in and make up fake ceremonies before the pandemics. So I was like, hey, I can't come in today. We got the squash dance or like the corn husk <laughs> dance. And so I would make all these up and my white bosses would be like, oh, OK, yeah, no worries. Don't come in. You're good. Like, let us know if you need anything. But now, like after the pandemic, call outs don't matter. So you can have as many call outs as you want. And I wasn't liking it, but then they're like, hey, we need a door guy. Can you go be in the front door, like telling people that only 30 people can come in? 
And so like after like 500 years of genocide and oppression, like all of that is coming out at Whole Foods in the line, like ma'am, ma'am, no. Or like if like the best is like when somebody comes through with like 17 gallons of water and you're like, oh my God. And like, just like you start to get like a little fuzzy feeling inside and you're like, ma'am, I can't sell you this water. And like, like as a native dude who was in Standing Rock, like telling the white people that they can't buy water, like it just, it's liberating. Like the ancestors get all crazy. Like they, I hear a little wind behind my ear and like a, thank you. And like the wind <laughs> starts to pick up. And I'm, it just, it's just liberating to be like, wow, this is why white people love denying people water is because it's, 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 I hate to say it, but you, you're in power and it's like, this has never happened, you know? So usually I'm getting shot at with water cannons or something, but no, I'm the one that's like denying people at whole. So my, sounds kind of mean, but no, it's just 500 years of pent up like oppression and genocide that I'm just letting out by telling people, hey, you no, you can't get more than four gallons of water. So <laughs> hopefully this has been an experience. Well, thank you, Isaiah. This week was another big one for us for a lot of reasons, one of which is we partnered with the state court system to once again help stream a Supreme Court hearing. This time it was about a petition asking for the early release of some prisoners in our prisons and jails to help mitigate the COVID-19 outbreak. And the Supreme Court heard arguments on that and then ruled that the state was in fact doing what they could to mitigate COVID-19 outbreaks and spread in the jail and prison system in New Mexico. So at the same time, the governor is announcing new plans to address and plan for potential outbreak, as well as the risks that are currently in place. And there's nobody better to turn to on that subject than criminal justice reporter Jeff Proctor. He works uh, and reports for New Mexico in depth, as well as the Santa Fe reporter and um, Laura Paskus, again, checking in with local reporters. She wanted to get with Jeff Proctor for a few minutes just to get an update on this entire situation. So here they are with that conversation. Jeff Proctor, thanks for joining me today. Why is the inmate population particularly vulnerable to an outbreak like the novel coronavirus? It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, there are a number of kind of underlying health conditions that make people particularly susceptible to the ravages of COVID-19. Um, one of those is a liver, liver disease called hepatitis C. A massive percentage of our prison population here in New Mexico has hepatitis C. Um, a lot of folks are in prison on drug-related charges. That is generally a disease that's associated with intravenous drug use. Um, and once hep C gets into a drug using population, it spreads like wildfire. So that's one. And then a lot of other indicators that sort of point toward incarceration in a person's life um, are other like adverse health conditions. Um, diabetes is a big one, especially with the native incarcerated population here. Um, and then a lot of folks have asthma and also other kind of lung related diseases and COPD. So you have folks who are, um, by whatever reason they ended up with them, 
people who have a lot of health conditions that make them um, super, super vulnerable to uh, the possibility of dying from this. And then we've also got more than 300 people over 60 years old um, in our prison population. And as we all know, uh, older people have really borne the brunt of the death toll of this. Right. So looking at the inmate population here in New Mexico, what do the testing numbers look like and, and how many people have been tested and have tested positive among inmates and corrections officers? So the last count I have is as of yesterday, um, there were 13 inmates, just for context to start, there are a little more than 6,500 people incarcerated in New Mexico's 11 prisons. That doesn't include the jails. Um, so we're just talking about the prisons now. Uh, a little more than 6,500 inmates and about 1,800 staff. That includes the corrections officers themselves and administrative staff in the prisons. As of yesterday, they had tested 13 inmates. 11 of those results had come back negative. Two were pending. They had tested 63 staff and four of those had come back positive, the other 59 negative. Okay, so there have been two important events and announcements this week. Can we start with the New Mexico Supreme Court decision on rejecting a request from the American Civil Liberties Union? Can you talk about that court case? Sure, so the ACLU was one of the petitioners along with the lofts of the Public Defender and the New Mexico Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. They essentially filed an emergency petition with the state Supreme Court, alleging that the lack of testing and the lack of other precautions being put in place by Governor Lujan Grisham and the Corrections Department amounted to a violation of the Eighth Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Most people will be familiar with that codicil as cruel and unusual punishment. So that was sort of the base allegation and the relief they were seeking in the petition was for a, a large scale release of inmates, those who were medically vulnerable, like we just talked about, um, and those who were incarcerated on nonviolent crimes and had nonviolent pasts. So um, the argument from the petitioners, again, was you're not testing anybody, the sanitation um, efforts within the prisons are insufficient. It's impossible to socially distance in prisons, um, and you guys aren't giving anybody any soap. So we have we have an, a, an instance where this is cruel and unusual punishment. You might have somebody in who's 62, has asthma, and is in jail for marijuana possession. Should that be a death sentence? That was essentially the argument from the petitioners. The argument from the administration was, you know, we've done enough. We don't have any positive cases no Eighth Amendment violation. Ultimately, what the court decided was that the petitioners did not meet one standard within uh, cruel and unusual punishment, and that's deliberate indifference. One of the things that you would have to prove um, to, to reach that Eighth Amendment violation is that the administration, the government in this case, was deliberately indifferent to the health and safety as, uh, of inmates. The justices deliberated for a little more than half an hour um, and came back with a unanimous decision that it was not a violation. And then this week, the governor also made an announcement. What was that announcement and what do you think will happen moving forward? So the announcement this week kind of follows up a conversation that kind of finally got started in public last week uh, about this really significant lack of testing. 
um, of inmates and staff within the prisons. Uh, at the end of last week, they told us um, in response to a question I asked at one of the virtual news conferences, they, they told us that they were going to, to use the, the Sentinel surveillance pro uh, testing program to start testing inside the prisons. This week, they announced an actual plan for that. By next week, a week from today, I guess, the 13th, they've promised to uh, test 100% of the staff in the prisons and 25% of the inmates. They also announced that they would be testing every new arrival in the prisons and quarantining every new arrival for 14 days. In terms of what will happen next, I hope what we're going to see is a lot more testing in the prisons. All right, Jeff Proctor, thanks for your coverage. Stay safe. Thank you. It's good to be here. If you're like me, a trip to the mailbox is, uh, uh, can be a highlight of the day now as it's a, a pathway to the outside world during a stay-at-home era in the COVID-19 era. And one thing that a lot of folks, and really all New Mexicans, should be expecting to see in their mailbox these days is an application for an absentee ballot for the upcoming June 5th primary election in New Mexico. You may remember that Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver was hoping to turn the primary election into an all-mail-in election so that folks and poll workers didn't have to brave exposure to COVID-19. The Supreme Court ruled that that was not appropriate, and so the move now instead, they, as they recommended, was to offer absentee uh, ballots to applications and ballots to all New Mexicans. So it is something that is available to all New Mexicans, but you do have to apply for that. So that went out in mailboxes this week and led us to want to sit down with Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, the Secretary of State, to talk about how all that is working, to talk about the strain that a COVID-19 election is having on her office, both in terms of manpower and as, as well as finances, and how this also may be a dry run for the upcoming general elections in November. So here once again is senior producer Matt Grubbs and Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, thank you so much for joining us um, to talk a little bit about what people are going to be receiving in the mail, which is um, for just about everyone an invitation uh, to get an absentee ballot. Can you explain to me what's happening right now? Sure. So folks should be uh, already have uh, getting their absentee ballot applications in the mail from the Secretary of State's office. Everyone who is a registered Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian who did not already apply to receive an absentee ballot for this upcoming June 2nd primary should have gotten an application in the mail, a paper application, and also information about how to apply for that ballot online. You only need to do one, not both. Okay. Okay. So there are, there's a probably a pretty healthy chunk of people um, who belong to one of those three parties that you listed who um, have already requested an absentee ballot. That's right. In fact, um, we opened up our online absentee uh, ballot portal about a month early uh, and well before uh, the first day to mail out ballots, uh, May 5th, Tuesday, we had well over 60,000 applications for an absentee ballot that far exceeded the total number of absentee ballots in the 2018 general election here in New Mexico. Okay. And we're doing all of this because of a Supreme Court decision. Um, your office had asked the Supreme Court to allow you to mail, um, if I'm correct, ballots to everyone um, to sort of skip that 
intermediary part of actually requesting one. Um, how did that how did that work out? That's right. Um, and the reason for that request was to really create the conditions such that very, very few people would have to actually go to the polling place in order to receive assistance to cast their ballot. If we put a, a ballot in the mail to every registered eligible voter, then almost every voter would be able to vote easily and comfortably from their home, not to mention safely. Um, instead, the Supreme Court required that we are standing up all of the required polling locations and folks can come in person. Uh, instead, they said that we could at least mail out an application for an absentee ballot to every registered voter. And what we are in the process of doing is just really encouraging each of those voters that have that application at home to either send that uh, postage paid application back to, to get your absentee ballot in the mail or to go online to nmvote.org uh, and really just avoid going to a polling place unless you absolutely have to. Uh, we saw those lines, of course, in Wisconsin when they had um, their election uh, folks seem to be staying six feet apart, but these are very long lines um, for uh, people who um, have to stand in them, have to be exposed. That's what you're trying to avoid? Absolutely. Not only to avoid that for the sake of the voters, uh, but also for the sake of the poll workers who are going to be coming and working very long days during early voting and on election day. Most of the poll workers in New Mexico are over the age of 60, so they are in that at-risk group. And of course, we have been looking to hire younger folks, folks not in the at-risk category, but it's a challenge both for voters and for poll officials. And that's why we are really urging everybody, look, if you don't have to go to the polls, uh, if you don't absolutely have to have to physically show up to cast your ballot, um, please try and do that safely from home instead. Will county clerks have to have all the regular um, in-person voting sites open? Is that part of the ruling? So what the county clerks have been in the process of doing is looking to see where they can reduce. Um, many county clerks around the state have uh, either more early voting sites than they are required to by law or more election day polling locations than they're required to by law. They're trying to reduce that number down to just the required number of locations in anticipation of the fact that uh, we are going to have a record number of absentee ballots in this election, so not as many people going to the polling places, but also uh, just to reduce the total number of, of poll worker volunteers uh, that we have to put out in the field uh, during those processes. Okay. Um, do voters have to mail those ballots back themselves? Are parties prohibited from going around and, and collecting ballots and, and dropping them in the mailbox? Yeah, here in New Mexico, we do require a voter to return that ballot, again, either by just putting it in the mail uh, to be returned. It's postage paid, so it won't cost the voter a penny, um, or to drop it at a polling location or your county clerk's office. Um, you can, if you are uh, ill or under the care of a family member, uh, that family member, it has to be immediate family member, a mother, father, a son or daughter can, can drop that ballot off for you, or uh, a caregiver, somebody who is at your home, uh, you know, helping to take care of you. They will have to sign on that ballot who they are and who their relationship is to you because we want to prevent uh, any type of tampering with anybody's ballot once it's been filled out. Okay. Any idea what this costs? <laughs> 
you know, this election is going to cost a lot of extra money. Uh, we are fortunate here in New Mexico. We've received approximately $4 million uh, from Congress in the last uh, coronavirus relief package to help us with the additional costs of this election. However, uh, the additional costs, including all the, the personal protective equipment, uh, the, the postage and the processing, not only for all the absentee ballots that we'll have, but the, the cost of staging all of the polling locations as well that were required to by law, it's going to cost us approximately an extra $5 million here in New Mexico on top of what we'd already budgeted for the primary election before the coronavirus pandemic came to our state. Um, so this is a lot of money. Uh, we're going to figure out how to find that last million dollars. And then, of course, we'll have an additional challenge uh, if the virus recurs, as, as uh, scientists think it will in November, um, how we are going to uh, mitigate the, the issue then as well. Okay, I was just going to ask if it felt like a dry run for the fall, it, it very well could be. One of the things that could happen in between now and then, of course, is a special session. Um, do you have a sense for what will be on the call? Um, will some sort of uh, change to the election code be in there? We have been in very consistent contact with the governor's office uh, since day one of the pandemic here in New Mexico, working very closely together with the governor and her staff um, throughout this whole process. Uh, of course, I can't say with any um, confident, 100% confidence that we are going to have election issues on the call for the special session, but the governor and her staff are well aware that we uh, are going to be asking for some ability to have the flexibility that we will need for the general election in November in case the, the pandemic resurges again as it is anticipated it will. What we don't want to be doing is going back to the Supreme Court, um, having to make last minute changes. We want to be able to plan and prepare adequately in time for the election. And in order to do that, we are going to ask the legislature to help us figure out a path to do that uh, in light of this pandemic or, or some similar kind of emergency in the future. Sure, sure. Um, it sounds like timing wise, um, if, like the governor said, the special session would be June, middle of June or end of June, you'd at least be able to look at how this went um, and, and report back. That's right. Um, running this primary election is going to give us a lot of very valuable information uh, for what we both want to do uh, in anticipation of November and what we want to try to avoid. And of course, for election administrators, planning and preparation is key. It takes so much time um, to build out all of the logistics necessary to run an election, to hire and train all of the poll workers, to get all of the ballots uh, printed and accurate, to make sure that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. The more time we have available to us to do that, the better we can execute an election. And, and of course, as you mentioned, Matt, we saw the consequences of not having enough time in light of the pandemic in Wisconsin. Uh, it really created chaos. We know a number of people were infected by the virus uh, because of their participation in the election. That's absolutely what we want to avoid here in New Mexico, not only this June, but of course, this November as well. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, thanks for your time. Stay healthy. Thank you so much, Matt. Going back into the time machine a little bit for this month's Our Land segment, although it definitely applies to what we are seeing right now in New Mexico. We're looking at the Rio Grande River. Uh, two years ago, we talked to some folks about how dry the Rio Grande was after warm, dry winter. Laura Pascas, our Our Land correspondent, she spoke with scientists 
His research showed how climate change is already affecting the amount of stream flow in the Rio Grande that comes from snowmelt. It burns off much faster when it's warmer in the winter, and so we don't get the full advantage of that even if we had a fair amount of snow. And we are definitely seeing that bear out already again in 2020. But we wanted to get an update on that from Laura Paskus as well as look back at that Arland from April of 2018. So here is that episode of Arland. On this month's episode of Arland, we look back to 2018 and find a troubling prediction that's already playing out today. Then the Rio Grande dried in April following a warm, dry winter. At that time, correspondent Laura Paskus spoke with scientists whose research showed how climate change is already affecting the amount of stream flow in the Rio Grande that comes from snowmelt, especially in the spring. Laura, before we get into the piece, what are you seeing this year? Hi, Jane. So this year we're seeing really low stream flows compared to the historical average through Albuquerque. It's about a fifth of what we should be seeing this time of year, even though we had a pretty decent snowpack over the winter. Hmm. Does this look, does this look like it's climate change related? Is it able, are you able to pin that down? It does. So scientists have been paying attention to this trend for a while where we see um, even in years where we might have pretty close to normal snowpack or pretty good snowpack, the runoff itself isn't great because we're seeing earlier snow melt, higher temperatures. And of course, the warmer it is, the more the soil and the forests and the fields um, need to suck up some of that water. So this year um, is pretty typical of what we'll see in the coming years again and again. Laura Paskus, thank you. Here's our land. This time of year on the Rio Grande, we should be seeing much higher flows than we are right now. South of Albuquerque, the river is even dried in places. But scientists are not surprised that this is happening. In a new paper by Shailene Chavaria and David Gutzler, they talk about why this is happening and what we can expect in the future. We see big changes in the winter and early spring so big changes in winter temperature, increases in winter springtime temperatures, and decreases in stream flow. At the same time that our understanding of the climate system has improved, um, we're rethinking uh, the way that the different components of the climate system fit together in a new climate that's unambiguously getting warmer. University of New Mexico professor David Gutzler has been studying climate change for more than two decades. Right now, he says, the state is about three degrees warmer than it was during the 1970s. Those changes are seen in extremes. Winters aren't as cold and more summer days are very hot, even by New Mexico standards. That warming trend over time is different from variability or year-to-year -year changes. New Mexico is a variable climate. So for um, millennia, we have seen wet periods and dry periods on the order of decades. What's not so normal by historical standards is how warm it's been. And so looking forward, we need to plan for a time when we have wet spells and dry spells that can last for many years all in the context of a warmer climate, which means less snowpack and diminished surface water recharge and less uh, surface water flowing down the rivers 
during the drought periods. And the effect of warmer temperatures on those drought periods is to make extreme drought even more severe by increasing evaporation rates and drying out the soil, melting the snow. Many New Mexico communities are already experiencing the impact of climate change, including those around the Jemez Mountains, which have been hit by drought, then fires, and later by post-fire flooding. Shailene Chavarria is from the Pueblo of Santa Clara, and she's a recent graduate of the University of New Mexico. Her master's work focused on the effect of warming temperatures on snowpack and stream flows. My people, the Santa Clara people, are um, our traditions revolve around uh, the seasons and revolve around um, the, the water that we get from the river. We've seen a lot of changes in our, um, in our area, especially with the fires that have um, impacted uh, our watersheds. We've had multiple fires that have hit Santa Clara Pueblo, but the most recent fire, the Los Conchas fire, was um, a really devastating fire. It burnt a major portion of the Santa Clara Canyon area, which is the headwaters of the Santa Clara Pueblo. Having lived on these lands for generations, Pueblo people know change is happening. And while they're still dealing with current fires and floods, more is likely coming. Everything works together. If I do something, it's going to have an impact on something else, which is going to have an impact on something else. So. If I degrade the environment, it's going to have an impact on future generations. Future climate projections for the Southwest is that water resources will be stressed. So we won't literally run out of water by any means, but the ways we've managed water in the past may not work to provide all the water that people think they need in the future. And the sooner we plan for that, the more likely we are that we'll end up uh, managing water in a way that does satisfy people's needs as we define those needs in the future. Already in April, when the river should be running high with snowmelt, more than 10 miles of the middle Rio Grande south of Socorro have dried. Even in Albuquerque, the river's down to levels usually seen during the hottest, driest weeks of summer. For New Mexico in Focus and Our Land, I'm Laura Paskus.